The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to read the first five verses of 1 Peter. Actually, though, that's just to give you some context. I'm really only examining the first two, and in fact, not much of verse two. But let's read verses one through five. Listen to God's Word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guided through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's holy word. Father, as we embark on this new study, will you startle us with a freshness and the power of your word, of what was said here by Peter so long ago, being said to us again in our setting, in our time, which is not so different. We come to this word because we trust it, we trust you. Speak as you have so often before, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We Americans write very few personal letters anymore. I've been sorting out and downsizing a lot of our possessions and things, among them boxes of correspondence. I save most significant correspondence that I receive. And I remarked to Carol, I'm working through the end of the 1980s now and uh, getting through a one-year folder, usually pretty thick. Uh, I said, boy, these folders are going to get a lot smaller as I move forward, and you know why, because we communicate now electronically. Not much paper anymore. When I first came here, I think I probably posted at least several letters, often as many as a dozen a day, notes or lengthier things that the secretaries would put through the mail. It's actually a rare thing that I do that now. And you know what's happened. It's happened to you also. Instead of writing a nuanced letter, expressing your personality, expressing different aspects of a subject, conveying to somebody instructions or thanks or whatever, something that someone might think was worth keeping for posterity, you were sending an electronic email, leaving a phone message, a text, 
a tweet, and there's quite a few others out there that I know nothing about. But I just know that they're not the same as a personal letter. I recently wrote about three paragraphs on one page because it was just about the fastest way I could do it to somebody uh, to just acknowledge something. And the person uh, reconnected with me and said, wow, you wrote me a handwritten letter. And it must have been the only one they'd received in a long, long time because they thought it was such a rare thing. We won't have the collected letters of people in the future like we have from Lincoln, let's say, or Jefferson or some other notable literary figure. But we do have in the New Testament Paul and Peter and James and John recording with a quill pen on papyrus or sometimes even on sheepskin living letters which the Spirit of God was inspiring for them to send forth and literally communicate with the people of God in ways that not only made sense and had application in the first century, but continue to speak to disciples of Christ in the 21st century. So we have this wonderful letter that we call 1 Peter. Very little dispute at all that it comes from the Apostle Peter. Scholars need something to talk about, so there's somebody out there that disputes it, but They're insignificant, really. This letter came from Peter. Once in informal conversation with some pastor friends, uh, I don't even know how this got started, but we were talking about favorite books of Scripture, favorite Gospels, and I said, let's have an interesting little discourse for a moment. I said, and I'm going to choose the number seven, and I said, how about if each of us tells the others If we had to go to a desert island and individual books had to be plucked out of God's Word so that we could only take seven books along of those in Scripture, what seven would you take? Now, these are pastors. You can have all Old Testament, all New Testament, half and half, whatever. Well, my somebody was eager to know my list. (laughs) All right, I'll tell you what it was. It was Genesis, Psalms, Luke and John, Romans, 1 Peter, and Hebrews. Now, that wouldn't be everybody's list, I'm quite aware. In fact, I was the only one who chose 1 Peter. And in fact, some guys said, 1 Peter? That isn't very important. I said, have you read it lately? (laughs) It's one of the most marvelous books because it is. It's like a primer on the Christian faith. It could be called Christianity 101 in some ways. As Peter doesn't write to argue or to solve tremendous interpersonal problems like in the church of Corinth. He writes to spread out what it means to be a Christian in a culture that largely is not. And he did a beautiful job by the Holy Spirit. It's just 105 verses, 1 Peter. But he talks about salvation, about divine election, about suffering, about who Christ is, the glory of Christ, what the church is how to respond to marriage and corrupt authorities in government. It's all here. It's a great book. Today I'm just looking at the first two verses. I read five, but I'm just looking at the first two because I want to ease into it. Some of you are aware when I start a new book, I usually am not real ambitious for amount of text when I begin, and then I pick up the pace, and that's going to be consistent here. I'm really looking mostly at what verse 1 says today, and I'm actually going to look at verse 2 
again next week. I'll be a lot faster than that once we get going. My concern is to see Peter as the author and also see the audience to whom he wrote, those who are called elect exiles. First, the author. This book reintroduces a man that we think we're very familiar with. We know him from the Gospels. And yet, if you really read and are sensitive to what you're reading, you find a man called Peter who has quite dramatically changed from what he was in the Gospels. He appears here in First and Second Peter as a famous apostle who finally grew up and reached maturity by the grace of God. Now, you remember him as Simon at first, the fisherman on the Lake of Galilee, whose brother Andrew came running in one day and said, Peter, wow, you've got to meet this guy I just heard. He's amazing. He, he does acts of power. His words are like no other rabbi we've ever heard. We wonder if he could even be the Messiah. And Peter ran out to examine that, of course. And he became more or less the leader of the band of 12, at least informally, the the spokesman, the man who always had something to say, even if he hadn't consciously engaged his brain with his tongue. And I remember him in one of his first great moments when Jesus said to the skilled fisherman in his boat, Peter, put the net over there. And Peter did that, and we read the whole boat was swamped with fish flapping all over the place, and in the midst of all that mess of slimy fish, Peter kneeled down and looked at Jesus and said, Lord, get away from me. You are obviously holy, and I am a sinful man. That was a great recognition. And then one of the second great moments for Peter's declaration when his brain was engaged was when in Mark's gospel, it's in the middle of Mark 8, 29, He was the first one to declare, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great recognition, Peter. But sadly, it was the same tongue that said a year or two later, I never knew that man. Leave me alone. And it was the same Peter with his head bowed and shamed had to hear Jesus three times forgiven. But it was the same Peter again, day of Pentecost. Someone stands up to preach. He hasn't been to seminary, but he's been with Jesus. And you remember Peter preached, and, and the, at least the visible outward response was greater than anything that we're told Jesus saw happen when he preached. 3,000 souls were added to the church. When this guy who had a stumbling tongue preached in the power of the Spirit. Well, then in Acts, he was released from prison. He had a price on his head. Herod wanted to kill him. And he had to get away somehow. And so Acts becomes the book about Paul as Peter basically disappears in Acts 15. And from that point on, until he wrote this letter... Somewhere in the early 60s A.D., a better part of 25-plus years, we don't know where Peter was or what he was doing, except that he ended up at Rome. And he wrote this book from Rome, which, by the way, he in the final chapter says, I'm writing from Babylon. That was Rome. 
And then he was killed in Rome about A.D. 65 or 66 by Nero's fierce persecution that also killed Paul. Peter gives us a premier case study in the transformation of one man by God's transforming grace. Originally, his name Simon meant little stone. Jesus gave him the name The Rock to signify that something was going to happen to this little stone that he'd become something quite different in his spiritual development. If you jump ahead and look in 2 Peter 3.18 at the last written words of this apostle, the last thing he penned in the Bible was this benediction. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he said to believers he was writing to. And that was exactly what happened to him. He had grown in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in those 25 years. We know not exactly where he was or what church he was pastor of or what place he initiated a ministry, but we do know he was engaging in apostolic ministry. He calls himself an apostle. An apostle is a resurrection witness. Peter, a resurrection witness of Jesus Christ. That's what he'd been doing for 25 years. And God had made him a new man by the end of that time. There are those scholars who would fight over this book and say, Peter couldn't have written that book. It's far too learned sounding to be written by a crude fisherman. Well, they give no account to the idea that God, by his Spirit, changed this man and made him seem and sound so different by several decades of spiritual growth. Peter once depended on himself. He was impulsive. He was strong. He was bold. But he often had to play the fool because of that. And now the Peter we get to know, and you'll see it as we go along in this letter, if you're with us, you'll see a man who's humble, who depends on the Lord, who tells people, wait on God. Don't be in such a hurry. God is doing his work. Just trust him. Just persevere. Just doesn't sound like old Peter. Well, it's not. It's a man who's been transformed by God's grace. One of the things that's true according to legend, at least, or tradition, the Scripture doesn't tell us this, but it is said that when Peter was executed by the Romans in Rome, he knew they were going to crucify him, and he said, no, you can't kill me that way. It would honor me if I was to die the same way as Jesus. So, crucify me, please, upside down. And it's said that they did that. By tradition, at least, that's what we're told. A man so humble, he said, I can't even die the same way as Jesus did. Well, you and I ought to learn something about the way God brings growth in a Christian life by seeing Peter before and after. And you know, I I think there are a lot of people Maybe you've someone who's been inhabiting the same corner of the same pew in this sanctuary for, for a long time now, only 10 years in this sanctuary, but maybe longer in our previous one. And uh, you say, well, you know, I'm here and I'm gone and I'm here and I'm gone and I plod along as a Christian and I don't think I'm really growing. I don't think I'm changing. All I can say to you as an experienced pastor is, Growth in grace is not like getting on the bathroom scale the day before Thanksgiving and the day after Thanksgiving and saying, whoops, I grew. 
in a way I didn't want to, as a matter of fact. Christian growth is slow. It's gradual. It's sponsored by God. It's his work, not yours. And the amazing thing is, others see the progress when you don't. And I don't know how I can make you believe that, but if I was to be parted from you as a a basic disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who loves him and loves his word and, and worships regularly and pursues the word and prays and seeks to live as the Holy Spirit allows you to, and you're discouraged and saying, I'm just not growing. I would say, well, why don't you and I part for 20 years and then get back together? And I have a pretty good reason to believe that if I interviewed you closely in 20 years and you'd been doing all the things that a Christian does, you'd be different. You might even be very dramatically different. I think of a friend, Dr. Tim Keller, who I knew in my doctoral studies together. We spent some significant time together. I don't see much of Tim and haven't now for 15 years. He's a famous man. He's a best-selling author. He's one of the best-known evangelical leaders in America. And I can tell you, I saw an ordinary but talented man 25 years ago, but a man I would have said God will certainly use. Would he become such a person that I would tell somebody I knew Tim Keller, and they would say, oh, you knew Tim Keller? Can I touch you? Uh, God has singularly gifted that man in a great way. But that's God's work. And that's the kind of thing he does, sometimes more with people than with others. What was happening in that historical gap of 25 years? We can't trace Peter's steps. We know he was ministering. We know he was preaching. We know he was moving about. And now he's writing near the end of life to people in very far-flung provinces. This is northern Turkey, we call it, north of the Taurus Mountains that he's writing to. Quite a ways out, a territory better than the size of Texas, actually. How did he travel that far? How long was he there? Was he there at all, or did he just know of these people? We don't know the answers to all of that. But the Peter, who we will see revealed in this book, will be a man, when we take the measure of him, we put him beside that crude fisherman who always had his foot in his mouth, and we'll say, look at this. When God begins a good work in us, he brings it to completion in wonderful ways. Well, secondly, the audience today is the other main thing I want to look at. And that audience has a name. Peter calls them God's elect exiles. They were some Jews who came to believe in Jesus, but the audience of this book, we strongly believe for various indicators that are in here, were mostly Gentiles, people who had come out of waywardness, out of pagan lifestyles, not out of Jewish upbringings, and they came to Christ, and now in various ways they were suffering, not necessarily some soldier chasing them with a sword, but life was difficult. They were being denied jobs. They were being sneered at. Uh, Pressure was put on them. People were we're saying, well, why should we? You don't worship the gods that other Romans worship. Why should you have privileges in our Roman society? And believers were responding and saying, why is this happening to us? I thought we belonged to a victorious Savior who defeated the devil and, and released us from the penalty of hell. And why are we going through all this difficulty? 
I didn't design it, actually, and didn't even realize it until early this past week that I was preaching this sermon on the day designated for prayer of the persecuted church. If you think, well, okay, that's a day that we bring up some Christians really under severe hardship, let me tell you one significant fact. I just heard on a Christian radio station this past week that two-thirds, easily two-thirds, of all people naming the name of Christ as Savior and Lord are undergoing significantly greater persecution than any American receives for our Christian faith living in the borders of America. Two-thirds. In some, it's, it's so harsh that they have to watch every move and every word or they'd be in prison or their pastors would be in prison. Or they might even be killed. You certainly have read of Muslim extremists who have gone into villages and said, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? You three line up at that wall. Bam! Shoot them. No questions asked. Peter's writing to people that aren't quite under that severe a thing. The Neronian persecution, it's called, Nero's persecution, really got hot and started killing a lot of people in the mid-60s. That's when both Peter and Paul died. That hasn't quite come that strong yet in the Roman Empire of Peter's day, but it was heating up. It was coming. And to tell people how to react, you will see Peter reminding them numerous times in this letter of the suffering that Jesus had to undergo. And in the last part of chapter 2, one of the most precious passages in the New Testament, the Mount Everest about suffering, Greater distilled wisdom, I would say, than the whole book of Job, having just preached it, I think I'm willing to say that, is the end of 1 Peter 2, when he talks about how Jesus responded to suffering. Peter's writing, he says, to people who are God's elect. God chose you to be one of his, is a big point that he's making, not just in verse to, but throughout the letter. And I'm going to spend the whole week next week on verse 2. How's that for fast progress through the book? Verse 2, because of this concept, God chose you to be His. God chose you although you were a Gentile. He calls you out of your empty way of life, First Peter 1.18 says. You used to follow an empty life handed down from your forefathers. He calls you out of that. And that empty way of life is what most people around you in this Roman society of the first century are still pursuing. God calls you out. Even though you must live with them and beside them, you are a new citizenry, a minority within the mass of society to live as elect aliens, resident aliens, so to speak, refugees, literally refugees of heaven in this godless society. A Christian is called to be what we could call a pilgrim because our citizenship is in heaven. And we respond to the king of heaven as the primary one calling and directing our lives. And so our moral and ethical and political choices are primarily directed by one who doesn't live on this earth, and he's not in a palace in Rome. He's the sovereign and living God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so Peter 1-1, one, one, 
if we didn't cover more today, and I'm not covering much more than that, casts a die for everything that follows because Peter is developing the same idea of Hebrews 13. Here on this earth, we have no continuing city, but we seek one that is to come. We are a select minority belonging to God for him to exhibit his purposes in this present confusing, secular, godless society. I'm assuming you're not ignorant of the fact that in 48 hours we have election day. We go to the polls to seek leadership for America. And it's no secret that many, if not just about all of us, do so, no matter what our party is or our candidate is, we do so with a sense that America has lost her way. And yet we must live amid this society, just like these believers had to live amid the society of Rome without belonging to it completely. Folks, I would see it as a grave mistake For any new creature in Jesus Christ whose primary calling is to belong to God and show the excellency of his glory and his salvation and his son in their life, to base our hope about the future in the outcome of any election, this one or any one we might ever have. Is it important? Of course it is. Absolutely important. And I would even say, and you can fuss over me all you want to, if you're not in the voting booth on Tuesday, shame on you. God has given you a tremendous privilege as an American citizen. Shame on you if you don't use that privilege and approach it with prayer and discernment and say, oh God, show me what to do. We need to be reminded of something from the Old Testament. A book you haven't read recently, I would say, is Esther. I won't ask for a show of hands. Who has read Esther in their daily devotions lately? Probably not many. Esther 3.8. There was a king who had two different names. He's called Ahasuerus in the Old Testament. He also went by his Persian-influenced name, Xerxes. King Ahasuerus had a complaint brought to him from a tattletale who wanted to accomplish something by bringing this information. He whispered in the king's ear what Esther 3.8 says, quote, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among your realm whose customs and laws are different than all other people. Oh, that was supposed to get the king excited to go wipe these people out or something. What it causes me to ask and and give you as a challenging question is, will we be noticed within America in such a way that somebody will whisper in the next president's ear, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among your nation whose customs and laws are different than all other people. Beware of them. I hope somebody will whisper that in the next president's ear. I hope the next president will discover that and understand that God has a people of his possession in the midst of this nation, mixed in among them as leaven in the loaf, fermenting godly purposes in this nation that not everybody accepts or respects or is even willing to permit. I've read more than once the 
novel about, or not novel, but uh, biography about John Adams that was made into a video series. Many of you saw it probably a number of years ago. It brings alive the second president, John Adams, who was, by the way, a serious-minded Christian who loved the Word of God. John Adams was appointed to do many things. He was a man who wore a lot of hats before he was president. One of the important things was they made him, Washington made him ambassador to the court of France. I'm sorry, the Continental Congress did that, not Washington. They made him ambassador to France. Why? Because they knew that they needed a friend, a, a powerful friend, a wealthy friend who could lend money, guns, food, uniforms, and especially a navy to the assistance of the American forces fighting Britain. So Franklin was already over in France. He was having a pretty good time getting along with everybody. He worked his way. Adams worked another way. Adams was appointed because they weren't entirely happy with what Franklin was doing, and they sent him over knowing Adams is a man of business. Boy, he takes the the subject by the throat and gets right at it and points people to it and says, let's get going. Let's work this out. How much are you going to loan us? At what interest? How many ships are you going to send? And Franklin was off going to parties. They say both accomplished something. But Adams was a man who did not fit in the court of Versailles. Definitely not. A court that was about as corrupt as any has ever been with immorality and a whole social milieu that said, let's party. Adams was very uncomfortable. He felt he was accomplishing nothing. He agitated, but he worked and worked and worked to try to forward his cause and finally went back to America feeling like he had accomplished nothing, that he he just wasn't the man for the job. But people said later on, when France finally got on board and finally helped us, that it was as much Adams' work, or if not more, perhaps, than it was Franklin's work that was accomplished. Our American friends and neighbors expect from you and me a slavish conformity to their way of thinking, and their way of thinking is expressed in the TV commercials, which mercifully shall come to an end. Can I ever get an amen on that one? Any man or woman who is supernaturally singled out by God changed by the work of God through Jesus Christ on his cross, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, justified by grace through faith, and appointed to belong to God's people in eternity, has to feel out of step with our neo-pagan society. If you don't feel out of step, there's something wrong with you. We are primarily influenced by a new citizenship with new desires, new goals, new loyalties, and we belong to a Lord who isn't being elected on Tuesday. He was elected before time by himself because there's no other greater than him. We are called in this society to be God's elect exiles, belonging to Jesus Christ who died and rose, Jesus Christ who is coming, Jesus Christ who is the hope of America and planet Earth. So I say to you, take heart. Take heart in this, by the way. You know, this this book is later going to call us to be subordinate to 
governmental powers. Well, you say, okay, that sounds good. Be subject to the government. Did you know who the government was when Peter was in Rome? It was a certain Caesar by the name of Nero. By anyone's catalog, the absolute worst, most cruel, most devious, most evil emperor that Rome ever had. It was Nero who set the fires in Rome that burned half of the city because he thought he could blame his political enemies for it, and especially the Christians. You heard the expression, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Well, take heart. Here's Peter telling Christians who live under the rule, ultimately, of the all-time worst megalomaniac, at least from the ancient world, a, a, a worse tyrant has never surfaced. And Peter is saying, just be God's people in that society. And actually, you owe him a certain subservience, not to disobey God, but as far as earthly things go, you need to bow to him. Render unto Caesar the things that are his. But in 1 Peter 2.9, we're going to hear this apostle tell Christians that within Nero's Roman Empire, they were heaven's subversive citizen force, the leaven in the loaf, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession so that they would proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his wonderful light. This letter we're going to explore in coming weeks is God's letter to elect exiles in America. And I believe his servant Peter is saying, as you live transformed lives under the influence of earth's one true ruler, may grace and peace be multiplied as you proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God rules and reigns. God rules and reigns. The White House does not. God rules and reigns. Father, help us. Because sometimes we are almost subject to drowning in the idea that politics can be our Savior. Help us as we go to the polls. Help us to do what is wise. We estimate, our Father, that those in our society who are called to be your possession, if you galvanize them with one mind, would absolutely change what happens in America this week. Help us. Be merciful to us. We do not deserve it. Call us to repent. Call us to know that change in America has to begin with us. Help us for Jesus' sake and for your righteousness. Amen.